I feel like the issue of intent and kind of culpability goes a long way in influencing, at least influencing a little bit, the outcome of some of the cases. Legislation changes month to month, year to year. But over the last century, the changes have been astounding. Join Karen Woody and her students from Washington and Lee University to dig into 100 years of insider trading law. Welcome back to the next installment of Classroom Insiders. This is the podcast where we walk through the arc and evolution of insider trading law over the past 100 years. My name is Karen Woody and I'm the host. Joining me today is one of my students, Lillian Spell. Lillian, welcome. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited you're here. So Lillian, tell me a little bit about you and your background and what you've done last summer, what your thoughts are about law school so far, all of that. Yeah. So I am a second year at Washington Lay School of Law. I'm actually a transfer. So I came from University of Mississippi or Ole Miss, as a lot of people call it. So I'm really excited to be at Washington Lee and here like talking to you today, honestly. So this past summer, I worked in the district court in Tennessee and Memphis. And this coming up summer, I'll be working at a civil litigation firm. And I'm hoping to end up in working in some kind of civil law eventually. So we'll see how this summer goes. I'm really excited to see how it compares to just my past summer experience in the judiciary. So see how that goes. That's wonderful. Where will you be? I'll be in a firm in Mississippi, in Jackson, Mississippi. Oh, great. That's wonderful. So you were at the federal district court last summer? Yes, that's correct. With Judge Norris. Great. Any insider trading cases before the court? No, but it was definitely an interesting summer. Just with COVID, we had a lot of really small in-person like sentencing hearings. So I got to like see a lot of stuff, which was really exciting because it was something I hadn't done before. But it definitely got me more interested in litigation, which is kind of why I ended up going to be working at a civil litigation firm this coming up summer. Great. Okay, so today we are going to be talking about insider trading, of course. So Lillian, I have a few questions for you just to get us started. And the first is just to orient our listeners and anyone who maybe hasn't been following along with this podcast for the last few episodes. But tell me if you will, just a little bit about the background of insider trading law before the era of Justice Powell, who we'll spend a lot of time talking about again today. So give me a a little bit of the the landscape before he takes the bench. Yeah, so basically the understanding of insider trading before Powell's jurisprudence is really concentrated in, I think, Katie Roberts and Texas Gulf Sulphur, which was basically the disclosure abstain rule. So broadly, the disclosure abstain rule kind of stipulated that an insider who had or possessed material non-public information had to disclose that information before trading it, or if disclosure was impossible or improper to abstain from trading on that information. And because Katie Roberts was an administrative decision or ruling by the SEC, it didn't really have presidential value until Texas Gulf Sulphur which reiterated the disclosure abstain rule. And one important thing I want to note, though, is that the defendants in these 10b5 cases had to owe a duty of disclosure to some investor in order for liability to arise, which kind of leads into Chiarella. All right. So Chiarella, we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about today. 
even though we had a separate podcast dedicated almost entirely to that case, that case becomes of utmost importance when we are discussing more recent case of Carpenter, which we will talk about today. So, Chiarella, let's talk a little bit about that. What happens in that case? Who wrote that case? Why was that a bit of a sort of watershed moment for the court and certainly for the SEC and insider trading regulation? Tell me a little bit about that case. Yeah, so first of all, the majority was written by Justice Powell, who got his law degree at Washington and Lee, as well as an LLM from Harvard. And after that, he practiced in Virginia, interrupted briefly by military service in World War II, and then returned to Virginia until he was nominated to the Supreme Court. And so he's writing this majority opinion in Chiarella, where an employee of a financial printer that prepared documents like tender offer disclosure materials. So Chiarella broke the codes that concealed the names of companies involved in the tender offer and then purchased shares from the target companies before the bid was announced and sold those shares for a profit post-announcement. And so basically, if you know about an upcoming bid, then you can buy stock at a lower price and then sell or tender at the higher price post-announcement. And so Justice Powell in this case kind of introduced the fiduciary duty as the reason that you need to disclose or abstain. And so now after Chiarella, the disclosure abstain rule is triggered by a duty from a relationship of trust between the parties. It's just not automatically triggered like it was in Katie Roberts and Texas Gulf Sulphur. Okay, so let me just unpack that a little. So Chiarella, if we were still operating under a Texas Gulf Sulphur regime, he would be guilty of insider trading, do you think? I think so, yeah. <laughs> that makes sense. He's trading on right. non-public information. So in theory, there should have been maybe and yet another open and shut case for the SEC, or actually in this case, the DOJ. And so what's interesting is that for years before Chiarella, for decades maybe, they had just knocked down one insider trading case after the other in favor of the government because disclosure abstain was such a broad sweeping rule. But Powell sort of reverses that, or I don't know if we could say reverses it, but he certainly cuts down significantly the ability for the government to bring these cases by introducing, if you would, I would think he might take issue with that idea that he's introducing something new. I think he's actually just reformulating He's looking at this idea of disclosure abstain through the lens of trust law, trust in the state type law, also maybe a little bit of fraud. These other ideas where we look at what is required in order to trigger this duty to disclose. So what is his reasoning? Again, why does he say we do need to find a fiduciary duty here? Yeah, so that's definitely a lot to unpack. But I really do think that Chiarella kind of was if Powell wasn't introducing anything new, was his kind of first real opportunity to challenge the SEC's broad policy approach of equal access and kind of took it to reject that idea that 10b5 was meant to protect all investors and was instead kind of motivated from his corporate law experience. And so Powell aimed to ensure the efficiency of the market by cracking down on the SEC's attempt to broaden the interpretation of insider trading And so basically, based on this fiduciary duty idea, there had to be a duty to disclose based on that relationship of trust and confidence. And because Chiarella was not an employee 
officer or director in any of in any of the companies whose stock was traded, there wasn't a violation of securities law under that. Okay, right. So to me, it does get back almost all the way back to where we started in this class when we talked about the strong versus repeat case where we sort of, you know, in general, they did say you don't have any duty to disclose to people what you know prior to a trade. That was sort of the going understanding under general sort of fraud principles that were handled typically by state law. All of this is predating the federal securities law. And as we looked at throughout the semester, it's not clear that 10b-5 necessarily changes that because 10b-5 doesn't discuss insider trading. And, you know, a lot of this was sort of cut from whole cloth in some way. So all this were sort of cobbling together from various judicial opinions and SEC interpretations. So it does seem like Kyle sort of reverts back to this idea that you don't always have to tell everyone everything. If you want to do a trade, there might be some things you know and the other side might not know. And it's only fraudulent if you have a duty to disclose that. Absent the duty, there isn't a fraud here. There isn't, you know, I don't have this automatic, you know, pure transparency. I think you're right that he's very much pushing back against this idea that everyone should have absolute equal access to all information. He's saying that's not efficient. That's not realistic, maybe. And so I think you're right that Chirillus like changes the tide of where we're going with insider trading regulation. The follow-up to that is Chiarella, however, I think you could argue, did breach a duty, maybe only to his employer, but why wasn't that addressed by the court? That this isn't necessarily an innocent, he didn't stumble upon this information. He broke the codes. You know, he was definitely doing some nefarious activities. But why wasn't that something that the court considered or didn't think it mattered for Chiarella? Yeah, I believe this was just because the issue wasn't brought before the jury. Okay. What did the jury maybe not hear? I guess that's a weird question. Of <laughs> what was the absence? Tell me about all the things it didn't hear. But, you know, to this point, what was the issue that maybe would have gone a different way if it was before the Supreme Court? Okay, yeah. So basically, I'm going to start with Berger's dissent in Chiarella, because that kind of explains a lot of your question. But Berger was like similarly arguing that because Chiarella stole valuable non-public information that was entrusted to him in confidence and then exploited that informational advantage by trading in the market, he violated securities law by misappropriation. And because the issue wasn't submitted to the jury, the court didn't decide on misappropriation theory in Chiarella. So that's kind of how it seems Powell works around the misappropriation matter, just because it wasn't brought before the jury. But speaking more on misappropriation theory, Berger's kind of arguing that a person would be liable under 10b-5 if they, he uses the verb misappropriate material non-public information, and then use that information in connection with the purchase or sale of securities. And I would kind of expand on that misappropriate verb because it's part of the definition is in the word, just kind of getting an informational advantage through unlawful means and then trading on the stock market. Right. Which certainly would be a breach of duty if we're in the language that Pal uses, but I I think that makes sense. So it's interesting that even back in Chiarella, we've seen maybe the outline of a different theory here for insider trading. That seems a little new because, well, I guess I'll ask you this. What is different from about misappropriation theory, maybe as Berger said it, or as we'll look at it in Carpenter, then would be different 
from a classical sort of insider trading. And I think you touched on this a little bit when you said Powell didn't have any problem with Chiarella because he didn't have any connection to the trade, the companies in which he was trading. But I guess that was kind of where my question was, is is this a different idea, misappropriation, than what we have understood is typical insider trading? I feel like the biggest difference kind of lies in that fiduciary duty aspect. So in Berger's dissent, he's laying out that Chiarella would have violated a duty just by using confidential information. But Powell doesn't seem to be as concerned with that issue. Yeah, it sounds like he's sort of saying it's not even before us. But I also think you sort of mentioned a minute ago this idea that the breach of the duty runs to the company which you're trading. You know, like misappropriation is some illegal activity or some problematic activity that allows you to obtain the information and that the breach of duty runs maybe to the source of that information, which might not be what you're trading in. And Powell, I think, separates those somewhat of saying, well, you know, he didn't breach a duty to the trading company. He's almost seeing this as like, the information's owned by that company. You breached a duty by getting it and then you're trading on it. Whereas misappropriation adds, in my mind, this other element that you breached a duty somewhere, maybe not related necessarily. The information you get is about a company, but the source of that information might not be an insider of that company or... For instance, Chiarella might have breached a fiduciary duty to his employer of the printing press, but that didn't necessarily have an out, like an automatic connection to the companies in which he's trading, if that makes sense. And I think misappropriation is an expansion from what we've talked about in other cases because of that idea. Like you get information from somewhere and you breach a duty to that source of information. And then what you trade in might be unrelated to that relationship, even though obviously the information's about those other companies. But there is a separate, the issue is a breach of duty to the source of the information. At least that's how Berger seems to start outlining it in Chiarella. But let's actually take it from where it ends up starting to percolate up more into the mainstream, which is this Carpenter case. Of course, Powell also played an important role after Chiarella by also writing Dirks, another foundational insider trading case. But that case is much more of a tipper to be liability discussion. And I don't, I don't think it's as relevant to misappropriation, which we will get into with the Carpenter case. So Lillian, tell me a little bit about Carpenter and what's going on with that, with the facts in this case. Yeah. So in Carpenter, we have Winans, who's a reporter for the Wall Street Journal, and he wrote on a column on investment advice. It was called Heard on the Street. And Carpenter was an employee of the journal as well and delivered messages from Winans to Beelis and Brandt, the stock traders in this situation. And so the information traded between them was the dates and contents of certain columns that would appear in the column. So one thing, the columns themselves were public knowledge, but none of the information traded contained corporate inside information, but the column did have an effect on the price of stock that it examined and ultimately an impact on the market because of that. Uh, okay. So this isn't necessarily that the writers know some inside information directly from the company. They just know that this column will move the stock price likely. Actually, I haven't thought of that before. <laughs> They know that they have the ability to move the stock price if they write this article, but it's not that they have 
I don't know if they've called people at these companies that they're writing about or how they're finding the information, but I thought you just said this might not have automatically been inside information because the reporters now have it, but that they are sort of about to release it more broadly. Right. Yeah. That is how I've been thinking of this in like the context of Carpenter as a case as a whole. And especially that's put in a particularly important light because of Winnin's actual knowledge of his employer's policy of confidentiality. So I think that gets at the conflict between like misappropriation and like regular insider trading in Carpenter. And I guess I should clarify that it's still inside information and that it's not yet public. It might no longer be within the company itself, but the Wall Street Journal reporter has sort of a hybrid role in some ways of being constructively an insider for a few until it's published. So you are maybe if we were back in Texas Gulf Sulphur, that person certainly couldn't trade until it was published and disclosed. But post Chiarella, you have this interesting new wrinkle of like, well, I don't know if he can trade on that or not. You know, so walk us through sort of what ends up happening with this fact pattern. So actually walk me through it again, because I always get confused about the names of these people. (laughs) Yeah, so Winnins is our reporter for the journal and his co-worker and roommate Carpenter was delivering messages from Winnins to the stockbrokers, Felis and Brandt. Right, okay. And so Carpenter's not trading on this information or is he? No, he is just our go-between, essentially. Okay. And so he, however, gets dinged, obviously, with insider trading. This is the case against him and maybe others as well. I think we know that there are co-defendants, certainly, but this is really more an issue getting at the theory behind how Carpenter has breached any duty at all. So tell me what court we're in and so and what do they say before it gets to the Supreme Court? What happens uh, in the Second Circuit? So the Second Circuit in well, in affirming the district court held that the defendants could be convicted under a breach of confidentiality by misappropriation. So ultimately, they were convicted under misappropriation theory under 10b-5 and I believe 15 USC 78G. But one important thing I did want to say, like in the Court of Appeals, the court didn't find a fiduciary duty between the parties. And the only fiduciary duty was Winnin's duty to the journal as an individual to his employer, which alone was not sufficient to support a 10b-5 action. Okay. So what happens at the Second Circuit? Yeah. So the Second Circuit affirmed the district court and held that the defendants could be convicted under the theory of misappropriation for a breach of confidentiality. Okay. So the breach of confidentiality is the equivalent of a breach of fiduciary duty? I think so at the Court of Appeals level. Mm -hmm. So that suffices to be the breach of duty under which we can still move forward with a 10b-5 insider trading conviction, correct? Is that right? Is that your understanding? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, interesting. But is this the first time, I mean, is this the beginning of misappropriation theory in the second circuit? Were there other circuits that had blessed this idea that the breach of duty could be kind of the source of the information, even if that person or that institution is not the company in which you're trading stocks? Like, is misappropriation a new theory? Not since Chiarella. That's true. Burger and the Burger dissent, that was not yet sort of 
understood as the, you know, that was the descent. But yeah, it'd come about. But I think at this point, which we'll talk about when it goes up to the Supreme Court, where Justice Powell is sitting at the time it goes up to the Supreme Court, I think there was a circuit split on this issue, which is why the court took the case to try to resolve this idea that a certain number of circuits had agreed and sort of blessed this misappropriation theory as an appropriate theory to bring insider trading cases. But a few circuits, the fourth, and I want to say the eighth, had denied that this was enough for insider trading. Based on the rules set forth in Chirella, Dirks, sort of the cases we've already discussed. So because of that, this goes up for cert at the court. And what happens then? So Powell wanted to hear the case to reject the theory of misappropriation theory. So he wrote his draft dissent from the Supreme Court's denial of cert. Court initially denies cert to this case. Is that right? Yeah, correct. And so Powell sort of does a little bit of behind the scenes lobbying and gets them to reconsider the petition for cert. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And there are actually some, basically all of Powell's archives are at Washington and Lee. And you can see in his memos to his clerk and his memos to other justices that he really (laughs) wanted to hear this case just to really reject the theory of misappropriation. Fascinating. And so what did they do? They they re-vote on cert and and the case comes to the court? Yeah, they re-voted on cert twice, I'm pretty sure. And eventually, Justices Reinquist and O'Connor joined his draft dissent. But before (laughs) they heard the case, Powell retired. And so the court was split on whether misappropriation was valid for imposing liability in Carpenter. Oh, wow. Okay. So Powell convinces at least three other justices. You only need four votes to go up for cert. He gets four people to agree to hear the case. So it goes up to the court. But by the time it's actually heard or decided, I think even heard, maybe, he's retired. He's not on the bench and doesn't hear the case for which he fought very hard to hear. And as you say, in the memos that he's written that are in our archive, he makes a very strong argument in the memos back and forth in his pitch to hear the case that he wants to nail the coffin shut on any misappropriation theory for insider trading under 10b-5. Interesting. And so I guess that means because he's retired, it's an eight-person court. And what do they decide on this case? Yeah, so Powell seems like he really convinced Rehnquist and O'Connor on his position. So there was an ultimate 4-4 split on misappropriation, but the court was unanimous on the convictions under mail and wire fraud. Interesting. We have not talked much at all about mail and wire fraud on this podcast, but it is nearly impossible to avoid, especially if we have time on this podcast to get to the sister provision in some ways to mail and wire, which is 18 USC 1348, which is the securities fraud statute that is found in the same chapter as mail and wire. So what's interesting about mail and wire, and I don't know if you saw this in the opinion, is that mail and wire is an intent to deceive using either the mail or the wires, but it's a very broad sort of fraud statute. And what I find fascinating about the Carpenter case is that they find some evidence of fraud, I guess, but they don't find a 10b5 violation. I've always wondered what the fraud is if it's not insider trading. So again, like they split on the 10b5 insider trading conviction, but they say, oh, definitely this seems fraudulent. 
So we'll give them on a, we'll get them on a mail and wire. What is the effect of a 4-4 split on 10B5? Well, the split really just allowed misappropriation theory to continue on despite Powell's other intentions. In circuit's opinion stands, essentially. Yes, that's correct. Interesting. And so we have a loose, if, I don't even know if it is a full endorsement of the theory. It's sort of a win by default for misappropriation theory, but still at least in the Second Circuit. And then it's a little bit iffy beyond that because it's not an overwhelming, you know, it's not a majority at all about whether or not this is a valid theory. And so it's interesting that this is the outcome of, especially given the timing that this would have been a slam dunk 5-4 if Powell had remained on the bench. But instead we have this limbo that seems to persist a little bit longer, somewhat on misappropriation. Lillian, where does that leave us? What are your thoughts about, at least at that stage, before we get to the later case in O'Hagan, what would you think if you were an attorney at the SEC or the DOJ and wanted to bring a misappropriation case? Would you think that's a, a viable theory? I'm really inclined to say that, yeah, it would be. It honestly didn't even seem that strenuous for the SEC to pivot into misappropriation theory after Chiarella. So after Carpenter seemingly blessed misappropriation theory, I don't think it would be that difficult for the SEC to adopt misappropriation and convict for insider trading under that. Okay. You know, I think that is the case for a number of the circuits that were still very much allowing that theory to move forward. And then it's not until almost a decade later when we see the sort of final imprimatur of misappropriation theory from Justice Ginsburg. So quite a swing. Again, Powell would have completely ended that as even a theory under which we could have a case. And we get all the way to the other side, which is the full blessing of the court within about 10 years later. So that's what we will discuss on the next episode. So I won't make you discuss that with me, Lillian, but I very much appreciate you talking to us and giving us your thoughts about this. Do you have any final thoughts or takeaways from this semester, from the idea of you know, all the things we've discussed about what you think we should do about insider trading law or any of that before we sign off? Yeah, I would say that just generally looking at kind of all of the cases we've gone over in class as a whole, I feel like the issue of intent and kind of culpability goes a long way in influencing, at least influencing a little bit, the outcome of some of the cases. So looking at the ones we've discussed today, I would say the kind of spousal relationship and carpenter paired with some, I know we didn't discuss them, but some of the evasive measures that Winans and Carpenter took in mm. giving the information to the stockbrokers compared to in Chiarella, where he was kind of decoding information that came across his desk as normal like business operations. I think comparing those is very interesting. And I definitely would want to kind of look at that more in a broader scope. But I do think that's one of the interesting things looking at these insider trading cases, because they can get very contentious. And a lot of the times they're in the public eye in a way that some other cases wouldn't be. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I know I promised to let you off the hook, but that made me think of a few other things, which is I appreciate that fact that we didn't really get into about the very sort of deceptive measures that defendants took in Carpenter. And that maybe is a reason that it was so obvious to at least the justices that was this was mail and wire. This was some deception, some fraud. They are not totally sure if 
the parameters of insider trading were met, but there clearly was some deceptive activity, maybe to make money or to obtain property. Another interesting wrinkle in Carpenter we didn't touch a lot about is this idea that out of Carpenter comes this very important theory under mail and wire about if that information is property. Because you have to have, have an intent to deceive in order to obtain money or property. And so that became a very live issue in this case about whether or not the just information from the Wall Street Journal was something that was considered property such that they have you know stolen it or were, had deceived the journal into obtaining that. So that's another interesting angle. I also appreciate that you mentioned the other interesting fact we didn't bring up, which is that Winans and Carpenter, I think, were in a relationship and that that maybe had colored some of the prosecution here. There's a great article by Ellen Podgor on that topic, which I would recommend to all of our listeners. But no, I think this was a great discussion. I've learned a ton. I really appreciate you talking to me. Thank you for being here. And we can sign off. 